God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams makes glad the city of God. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He is the one who makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Holy Father, we look forward to that day when your exaltation shall cover this entire planet. We know your name is mocked. It's used in vain. It's blasphemed. But you will accomplish your purposes. We pray for the people this morning in Turkey and Syria, now with over 30,000 dead. Two nations that have persecuted your people, that have beheaded many Christians, that have a deep disdain for the people of Israel. And yet you are sovereign. Thank you for those in those nations that know you. And love you and thank you this morning for the Christian organizations that are there giving aid. May their testimony be heard. I thank you for the people that you've raised up in the last few weeks for Upward Sports and I pray that you would finish that this morning. That you would give us some more workers. Thank you for those that will be here tonight for Awana that it is that important to them to build into the lives of these children. We pray for that time, that it would be rich. And I pray tonight for our Meet the Pastor, for those who don't know you and others who know you and love you and need a church home, that you would bring them. Now, Father, I yield myself to you, and I pray that you'd be glorified through me as we just sang. That as I open your word, that you would open our hearts to its truth, that we'd be more than those who simply hear the word, but those who are willing to obey and apply it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. This is a two-part sermon, When Heaven Comes to Earth, as you can see there on your bulletin. And I want you to imagine for just a moment a world in which there's no devil, because there's coming a day when the devil will be locked up in the abyss for a thousand years. I want you to stop and imagine a world that's filled with the redeemed saints of God from Pentecost all the way to the rapture, meeting one another. I want you to imagine meeting the brave tribulation saints who were beheaded for their faith because they were unwilling to take the mark of the beast. I want you to imagine a world when you might walk and meet people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Adam and believers during the Old Testament realm, a world where God's people will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the day that we are going to begin examining this morning. It will last for a thousand years when heaven comes to earth. Now, if you've been with us, we've been studying a series of judgments that happen at the second coming of Christ that there's not one singular judgment as some have portrayed and as most unbelievers think, but there's actually a series of judgments that happen at the second coming and then a final, final judgment 
at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so if this is your first time, I've been doing a series. This is actually the 25th message on God's prophetic schedule. And we will, God willing, when we're finished with this series, take another book of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The series started with the rapture of the church, that the next great event on God's prophetic schedule is the catching up of the church. And John writes of this in Revelation 4 and verse 1. Listen to these words. After these things, after what things? After chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are filled with images of Christ and His church, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. One of these days, it could be today, God will catch up His people, and we'll be gathered to the place where Jesus is. And so the church is conspicuously absent in Revelation 4 through 18. They're not mentioned at all. You won't see the church again until Revelation chapter 19. We'll be caught up. A door in heaven is open. We enter in. And the word caught up, harpazo, from the Latin translation of the Bible that was used for a thousand years is the Latin word rapturo. And so we speak of the word rapture. People say the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's not in the English Bible, but it's in the Latin Bible, and it's simply translating the catching up, the snatching away of God's people. Now, we've studied how Christ comes back the first time um, in the early stages to catch us up, and we meet Him in the air. But then a period of time begins to unfold that is unparalleled in human history. We've seen a, a tragic earthquake this week. Over 30,000 people now dead, and they say there could be many thousands more. Just seems to grow by the hour. That's just a glimpse of what is in front of the earth. Because there's coming a time when Jesus said, For then there will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And that tribulation is unfolded not just in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, but in Revelation chapters 4 through 18. And when Jesus said that, he was not exaggerating. He's God incarnate. He never exaggerated. He could never bend the truth or overstate the truth because he is the truth. And if you think of all the atrocities that have happened since the beginning of time, all the earthquakes, all the tornadoes, all the holocausts, all the wars, all of the innocents who've been slaughtered, you could put it all together and it doesn't even begin to compare to what is in front of man in this seven-year period known as the tribulation. Here's a visual picture of where we've been in this series. We've seen that the next great event is the rapture of the church and after we're caught up, there's a space of time. We don't know how long, whether it's weeks, days, or months, but it appears to be very short and there will be a man who will step on the scene. He's given over 30 titles in Scripture. His most prolific title is that of the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with the people of Israel, and the 70th week of a prophecy found in Daniel 9 will begin. Daniel tells a prophecy of weeks of years. He speaks of 69 weeks of years, or 483 years, that concern Israel. And then this space of time... Because he came to his own, his own received him not. And then the 70th week will kick in when this covenant is signed. And it's seven years long. At the end of the seven years, there's a space of time. And we'll see it this morning 
where then Jesus comes in the second coming, and he will then rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, these events have never happened. There's never been a one-world leader, a one-world government, but the Bible speaks of these very things, and this move towards globalism, we just see it building every year that goes by. And this one world ruler in the middle of this seven-year period will commit the abomination of desolation, and so we will go from the sealed judgments found in the first three and a half years to great tribulation with the bowl, with the trumpet and bowl judgments. And of course, Jesus points out that those who are alive to witness these events, they should pay attention to a parable he told. Let me read that parable from Matthew 24 and verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. The word parabole speaks of a truth that you cast alongside something in order to build a spiritual truth. You use something that has happened or could happen to drive home a truth that will happen, something unknown so that we can understand something uh, something known so we can understand something that is unknown. And so, of course, a Jew is very familiar with a fig tree and its seasonal fruit and how it blossomed. And in the spring of the year, it would put forth those little tender leaves. And when they saw those little tender leaves, they knew, oh, summer is coming. It's fast approaching. And Jesus' point is when the generation of people witness the events in Matthew 24, including the abomination of desolation, where they witness a time like the world has never seen in all of human history, they too should know that the return of the Messiah is near. Now, sadly, some have equated the fig tree to be the people of Israel. And so they've reasoned like this, when Israel becomes a nation, the generation that is alive when Israel becomes a nation will see the second coming of Christ. The person who really postulated that was a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey. And so he wrote a book in the 1970s called The Late Great Planet Earth. He said Israel became a nation, May 1948. A generation is 40 years long. So the second coming has to happen by 1988. Back it up seven years. The rapture has to happen by 1981. Those dates, of course, came and gone. And then he came back sold the body of Christ more books. And he said a generation could be 70 or 80 years. So now that brings us to, in the 80-year realm, 2028, back up seven years, 2021, the rapture must take place. It's sheer nonsense. But if you want to sell books, you sensationalize things but you have to let the Scripture speak for itself. Now, there's no question, because Moses states it, Jeremiah affirms it, Ezekiel repeats it, and Jesus predicts it, and the Revelation describes it, that at the very end of time, God will gather the Jewish people back into the land. We have witnessed biblical prophecy in our lifetime being fulfilled, because Israel has to be back in the land for the final prophetic schedule to unfold. So Israel is a super sign, a super prophecy, and the unfolding of what God plans to do in the future. But Israel is not the fig tree. Now, certainly in Jeremiah chapter 24, God compares those who are away in the Babylonian captivity, the good captives to good figs, and the bad captives to rotten figs. 
He does the same in Jeremiah 29. And in Luke 13, Jesus compares the unbelief of Israel to a barren fig tree. But if there's a symbol, I suppose, that God uses to encapsulize Israel, it's a grapevine. And so on many of their coins, found at different periods, all the way from Solomon through the first temple period and following, you would find grapevines on their coins because that was a picture of God's blessing on the nation. He's making a simple point here. When you see the fig tree put out its little sprouts, you know summer is near. Even so, the generation that is alive that witnessed the things that are described in chapter 24, they know that Christ's coming is near. In New England, where I grew up, one of the first trees to put out its little leaves was the willow. You're always kind of blessed when the willow tree put out its leaves because you knew winter's just about over, spring is coming, and the warm weather of summer. But the fact that it does not represent Israel is crystal clear from the parallel passage. In Luke's gospel, he writes this in Luke 21, 29. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. So if Israel were the fig tree, Jesus couldn't say all the trees. He's just saying, here's a general principle. When the sprouts come out, you know summer is near. And the generation who witnesses these things, they should know he is near. And so Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 33, you can bank on this. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Please note, he does not say recognize that he is here, but recognize that he is near. Look up, your redemption draws nigh. If he was here, then you could calculate the day. Understand the rapture is not found in Matthew 24. We know exactly how long the seven-year tribulation period is. It's affirmed by Daniel and Revelation. It's given in months and days. So you could calculate, oh, here's the signing of the peace treaty. Here's the second coming. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. And he's not speaking in reference to the rapture because the rapture isn't found in Matthew 24. He's speaking in reference to the second coming. But when you see these events, that generation, you know that he is near. And there's a short, apparently, space of time, even affirmed by the end of the prophet Daniel. And then Jesus will literally, physically come to the earth. And so remember, just as the first coming program included a number of events, his birth, his life, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, even so the second coming program includes a number of events. And included in those events are the catching up of the church, the great tribulation, his second coming to the earth. Here's a chart that God gave me a few years ago that I tried to sort out in my mind the distinctions between these two events. At the rapture, of course, Christ comes in the air. At the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. So right off, he meets his people in different places. We shall meet the Lord in the air, Paul will say. But the prophet Zechariah, speaking of the second coming, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Why is the Mount of Olives covered with graves? Why is it the largest graveyard in the world? Because the Jewish people believe what the Scripture says. Messiah is coming back to the Mount of Olives. He's going to go to the Temple Mount. And they bury themselves in such a way that when they stand up, they're looking right at the Temple Mount because that's where the Messiah is going to be. 
He's going to literally split the mountain in two. Ezekiel says a river will flow from the Temple Mount, among other places, all the way to the Dead Sea, and men will be able to fish in that. Have men been able to fish in the Dead Sea? Not on your life if you've been there. It's the deadest sea in all the world. But it's going to happen because God said it would happen. This chart also indicates the difference between these two events and that at the rapture, Christ comes for his people, where at the second coming, the angels come for the lost. Again, the Lord himself, Paul will say, will descend from heaven. But listen to what the angels of God will do towards the lost. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness. Why? Because no unbelievers are going to enter the kingdom of God. There's also a difference between these two events in that uh, at the rapture, his people are removed from the earth to heaven, whereas at the second coming, the lost are removed from the earth to Hades. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We're gonna meet the Lord in the air. He's gonna take us to heaven at the rapture. The second coming, he's gonna remove by his angels all the unbelievers and they're gonna go to Hades. Listen to these words again from Matthew 13. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them where? Into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so when an unbeliever dies today, he goes to Hades. And we'll be studying Hades and this schedule as it unfolds, this prophetic schedule. They're not in hell. No one is in hell yet. They're in Hades. And there's a distinction between the two. Hades is a place of torment, and someday, as Revelation 20, 11 to 15 indicates, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, the final, final resting place of all the lost. This same truth, by the way, Jesus brings out in the Olivet Discourse. Notice Matthew 24, 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And then he begins to unfold those days. And among the parallels, listen to what he says in verse 40. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Al Lindsay saw something no one else saw in 2,000 years. And he said in the 1970s, this is the rapture. The rapture is not found in Matthew 24. In classes on hermeneutics, we would use Hal Lindsey as an example of how not to interpret the Scripture and how the Scripture was abused. It sells books, but it has nothing to do with Christ's second coming to the earth. The parallel here is just as the lost people in Noah's day were taken away in judgment and Noah and his family were left on the earth to enter into a brand new world, even so at the second coming, all unbelievers will be removed by the angels of God and believers will enter into the kingdom in a brand new regenerated world. And of course, that's clear from the parallel passage in Luke. It says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And then in answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. We live in a part of the United States where you see vultures. Some people have never seen vultures. And they come to South Carolina and they say, look at that big, magnificent bird in the sky. And it is big and it is magnificent. But they're God's garbage cans. They eat dead things. They, they, they eat dead things. 
And Jesus' point is just as when a body is dead and the vultures come and eat on it, even so there will be judgment when Christ comes back because unbelievers will be consigned outside of the kingdom. Look at the rapture. You don't want to be left behind because if you've heard the gospel and clarity and power and you've been left behind, you will not believe during the tribulation. At the second coming, you want to be left behind because it's only unbelievers who are removed from the earth. Two distinct events. At the second coming, or at the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial. Whereas at the second coming, he comes at the end of the hour of trial, the end of the tribulation. Remember the promise Jesus made in Revelation 3.10? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's never, ever, ever been an hour of trial that's come upon the whole planet. It's coming. And he says, I will keep you from, ek, out of. It's not, I will keep you through the hour of testing. It's not, I will keep you in spite of the hour of testing. I will keep you, not, I will keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. I will keep you out of the hour of testing. Why? Because the rapture will take place. You say, well, that's great for that church. He'll go on to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what he says to the churches. So he's not saying it just for that church. He's saying it for churches like this, for the people of Community Bible Church. Where by contrast, in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of the tribulation, we just read it, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now listen to this verse. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So again, there's a separation. By the way, there's a group of people, we'll study it later on, they're called post-tribulationists. They believe we'll be here for the great tribulation. That just contradicts the verse we read from Revelation 3, we'll be saved out of the hour of testing. But if we go up in a rapture at the end of the tribulation, he's already separated them. And there's no one to separate out as we studied in the judgment of the sheep and the goats. In addition, there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming, and that there are no signs for the rapture. There are many signs for the second coming. As you read the New Testament, it's clear they sense that Jesus can come at any moment. Paul said, we shall not all sleep. He speaks of, and he uses the pronoun we. He said, we will meet the Lord in the air. Paul expected the rapture could happen in his life. Was he right to expect that? Yes, because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he's near, he could come at any moment. You see, those who are amillennial, and we'll talk about what that means, or post-tribulational, either group, they don't believe that Jesus can come at any moment. They believe there's all kinds of things that still have to happen before Jesus can come back. In a difference, there's a distinction in the timing of the resurrections. The resurrection at the rapture takes place when Christ comes and we meet him in the air, whereas the resurrection at the second coming takes place after he descends to the earth. Remember, we read this a few weeks ago from Daniel chapter 12. Let me read it again. Now, at that time, Michael, Michael the archangel, most of you know who he is. He is one of Israel's personal angels. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. This sounds like what Jesus said. And there will be a time of distress 
such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So after the tribulation period, the Old Testament saints are raised. The righteous are raised. And we'll see that Daniel, like Jesus in John 5, speaks not simply of the time of resurrection, but the kind of resurrection. And John is going to elucidate that for us by describing the first resurrection versus the second resurrection. The first is the resurrection of the righteous, the second of the unrighteous. I think, and I hope this will become clear before we're done. In In addition, there's a difference between the rapture and that believers who are alive will receive glorified bodies. We'll be like him when we see him like he is. Whereas believers at the second coming, they will retain their natural bodies. Now, we're going to study how the curse is lifted off of creation. So they're going to live for extended period of times like they did during Noah's day. You're considered accursed if you die at 100. A young man is 100 years old. You'll live for a thousand years. Tribulation saints will. They'll have children and grandchildren. We'll be in resurrected bodies. Jesus said those in resurrected bodies are like angels. And that we neither marry nor are given in angels. We don't become angels. We're like angels. It's a simile. We don't procreate. Whereas those who enter the, great, uh, the, the, the kingdom at the end of the tribulation, they will be able to have children. And their children will have to make decisions for Christ. All right, now, with that said, that's a backdrop. If that's all new to you, go back and listen to the first 24 sermons. With that said, let's read our text, all right? Revelation chapter 20, I want to read the first five verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid or took hold, you could render it, of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, those who came to life, this is the first resurrection. Now, we're going to look at the millennial reign of Christ from a time perspective. We're going to look at the first two points in time this morning. There on your note-taking outline, the millennial kingdom commences with Satan's doom. This coming kingdom age starts with the devil's doom. And I want you to notice uh, two truths that are highlighted concerning Satan's doom. First, Satan's doom will come by God's intervention. All right, look what John reveals for us here in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. Now, please notice verse 20 begins with the familiar phrase, then I saw. Or in the older edition of the New American Standard, 1978, and I saw. The word chi, and, or then, is a time word. 
And it's interesting because uh, he is giving a sequence of events starting in chapter 19. And when you come to chapter 20, every single verse begins with the word chi that you can translate and or then with the exception of verse 5 because verse 5 and verse 4 are linked together as a singular thought. Remember the chapter and verse divisions were added a thousand years after the Bible was completed. So it's, again, it's important to consider here the language that is used. You know, I have a few Bibles that have no chapter and verse divisions. And occasionally I'll take one off the shelf and I'll read it because I don't want to be distracted by the verse divisions or the chapter divisions. And that can be helpful sometimes. Now notice, um, uh, by the way, you might ask, well, why did they add them and who added them? They were added almost a thousand years after the Bible was completed. There was a Jewish rabbi who added them for the Old Testament, and a short time later, some Christians who added them for the New Testament. And they're important because otherwise, some of you still would be looking for Revelation chapter 20. You know, like, they had all these scrolls, and they wrote on the outside of the scroll the name of the scroll. Is this Habakkuk or is this Isaiah? Well, we wrote Isaiah on there. And where on this scroll? You know, when Jesus opens up the scroll in Nazareth, I mean, he knows that scroll so well, he can just move right to the spot where he wants to read from Isaiah 61. We have the chapter and verse divisions. And so remember, follow the flow of thought here. In chapter 19 and verse 20, when we studied the second coming, we read, and the beast was seized, he's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, he is the Antichrist man who points men to the Antichrist, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So these are the first two recipients. No one is in Gehenna, hell. They're in Hades today. But no one's in hell yet. The first two people to go into hell are the Antichrist and his false prophet. Well, it would only seem logical, having dealt with two members of this unholy trinity, that he would now deal with the third member. And so, as we're going to see today, he's going to begin to deal with Satan, and he'll finish his dealing before the chapter is over. Um, If you have taken my course on angels, and if you're interested, we offer something called the Institute of Biblical Studies. I, I teach it on a master's level. Many are taking it, but not for credit. They just download the notes and work through the messages. But some are taking it to get a a degree of sorts. It doesn't cost anything except your time and hard work and papers you have to write and books you have to read and your pastor who has to read your papers. (laughs) But there are six stages to Satan's career as we cover in angelology. Stage one is his ministry as the anointed cherub. He's described as a magnificent, beautiful angel leading the other angels of God in worship. Stage two is his fall. His fall is recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It's easy to remember. 14 times two is 28. So Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, the fall of Satan is described. His pre-fall name was Lucifer. Now the term Lucifer has an evil ring to it today. And we speak of, you know, Luciferian people. But actually, it means the shining one, and it was his pre-fall name, and he was renamed Satan. Stage three is his fall from the heavenlies to the earth. So during the great tribulation, Satan, who wreaks havoc in the the heavenly realms with all his demons, 
all those demons, one third of all the angels rebelled against God. They are literally, physically, actually swept down to the earth during the time of the great tribulation. Life is not pleasant. Stage four is Satan's restriction in the abyss. And by application, I think his demons with him, where for a thousand years, as Jesus is reigning on the earth, he has no freedom to wreak havoc. Stage five is Satan's release after the thousand years. And then stage six is his eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So Satan is not in hell yet, contrary to popular belief. Most people think he's in hell. Right now, hell is not inhabited by anyone. The first two will be the false prophet and the Antichrist, but ultimately Satan and all those who follow Satan. You say, well, I don't follow Satan. Well, if you're not born again, you are. Because Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so very dramatically, Paul said, you must be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And if you've only been born once, you'll die twice, as Revelation 20 is going to unfold before we're done in this series. And so there's no such thing as neutrality. But right now, we're in stage four, here in verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit could have easily have bound Satan. But what do they do? Angel, come here. And I think that's significant. Because God wants to underscore that Satan is not his opposite and equal. He's a limited, created person. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the he there is equally true of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because the Bible teaches, whether you know it or not, that you are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this angel comes down from heaven, and uh, he has this great chain in his hand. By the way, Satan is a limited being. God is right now allowing Satan to wreak havoc. Now, God's not the author of sin, but God can use sin in a sinless way, and he can accomplish his sovereign purposes. And I think we'll see that, especially before we're done with this series. But right now, the career of Satan is on hold. And so I saw an angel coming from heaven with the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And so there's a sequence here, then or and, it's the next event after the casting of the, uh, the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. By the way, this slide indicates that there are four categories of demons. Demons are in one of four places today. Remember, God created all the angels as holy. A third of the angels rebelled with Satan. They're called demons. Some demons are in the heavenlies. That's Ephesians 6. We wage war not against simply flesh and blood people, but against powers and principalities. Satan can toss his darts at the people of God, his fiery darts, and he's crafting the world system. He crafted a commercial for tonight, for the Super Bowl, and many people will be deceived by that. He doesn't have to tempt every single person. He only needs one person to pull off what he wants to do, and he does it. So there are these who are in the heavenlies, and so Daniel 10 illustrates it, this war in the, even in the angelic realm, and why Daniel's prayer was hindered and slowed down, so to speak, in terms of its answer. There's another group who are in a place called Tartarus. That's a certain compartment of what we might call hell. 2 Peter 2, Jude 6 describes them. They are in eternal bonds. This is a group of demons who have absolutely no power to tempt anyone. 
They are in eternal bonds until they ultimately go into the lake of fire. They're on death row, so to speak. What do they do? Well, Genesis 6 describes it, and the New Testament gives us commentary on it. They cohabitated with the daughters of men. There's a third group of angels that are in the abyss. Remember on that occasion when Jesus goes to Gadarene, and there's two men, and they're just filled with demons, 2,000? And the lead demon's name was Legion, and Jesus is going to deliver these two men. And the text says in Luke's account, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. So there's different compartments of judgment. Some angels are in eternal bonds. There are some angels right now who are in a place called the abyss. These are the worst of the worst. And Jesus deemed that these were not the worst of the worst, so he let them go into the swine, and they were drowned, uh, the pigs in the sea. But if you studied with me the revelation, there's coming a day when the abyss will be opened. And these angels for five months will wreak havoc across the earth. And then back to the diagram. Um, yeah, there we go. There's the fourth place of demons. None of them are there yet. And it's the lake of fire. And we have yet to study that. So again, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So this angel has this great chain. Now, Satan is a spirit being. Uh, he can manifest himself physically, but typically he's a spirit being like most demons. You say, well, what kind of a chain could confine a spirit being? Well, the same kind of eternal chains that are binding uh, those demons that are in Tartarus today. I don't know how God is going to do it. I take it it's not some kind of chain that you buy at the Home Depot that's, you know, super strong and galvanized, but God somehow is going to bind Satan for a thousand years in the abyss. It's a supernatural chain. Satan's doom will come by God's intervention. Secondly, there in your outline, Satan's doom will come by God's incarceration, by his incarceration. We read here in verse 2, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So four titles or names are given to us. Notice the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. And each name reveals something about our enemy. The dragon, it's used 13 times in the Revelation, largely in the 12th chapter. The dragon is looking for someone to devour. And in Revelation 12, the word dragon is modified by the word great, great dragon. Because Satan, of course, is the chief. He is the top of all fallen demonic forces. And not only is he called the great dragon, he's also called in the Revelation the great red, purus dragon. Red being a symbol, purus, for, for blood. And that's Satan's nature. He is evil. He wants to terrorize and murder people. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. Jesus in John 8 said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a dragon. He's ferocious. He has a lust for blood to murder people. And he's doing it across the planet through abortion and war and so many other things. He's also called the serpent of old. The word old is the Greek word. It comes directly into English as archaic. No one likes to be called archaic. 
but Satan is called the old serpent. He's just underscoring, this is the same serpent that slithered onto the pages of human history as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And of course, uh, he's also called uh, the devil, diabolo in, in Greek. It means someone who slanders. And what does Satan do today? Well, among other things, Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you before God in heaven. And of course, there's only three times in all of Scripture where you actually hear the voice of Satan. The first time you hear the voice of Satan is in Genesis 3. And what does he do? He slanders God before man. The second time you hear the voice of Satan is in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, he slanders man before God. He says, oh, Job, he doesn't really love you. You bought his love. Take away some of his blessing, and it will show he doesn't really love you. And the third time that he slanders someone is he slanders the God-man, Luke 4, Matthew 4. He is a slanderer. That's one of his titles. In addition, so he's called the dragon, and that he's looking for someone to devour. He is called here the serpent. He's looking for someone to deceive. He's a deceiver. And so there's a commercial tonight on the Super Bowl. They spent $20 million to show it. It's called He Gets Us. It's supposed to be about Jesus. It's not about Jesus. It's another Jesus that's being presented. But many Americans say, oh, yeah, he gets us. Satan is a deceiver. But, you know, again, people are ignorant of Scripture today, and most even Christian people, I fear, won't have the discernment to read between the lines and to read the clear statements that are made that this commercial didn't originate in heaven. He's the dragon. He wants to devour us. He's the serpent. He wants to deceive us. He's the devil. He wants to defame us. And he's also called Satan. The word satanus means adversary. He hates you. I hope you know the devil hates you. He wants to defeat you. But God will have the last word. Satan is powerful, but he's not all powerful. He laid hold, verse 2, of the dragon, the servant of old, who's the devil and Satan. And what did he do? He bound him for a thousand years. So this angel lays hold of him. It's a, it's a Greek word that means he has power over him. And again, this is God's angel showing that this creature called Satan is limited. And with a great chain, he bounds him for a thousand years. Look at the additional details in verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, the amillennialist, and we'll talk about him in just a moment, he denies the literal nature of this transaction. He says that, look, you know, this is not a literal chain. There's not a literal Satan that's going to be bound in a literal place called the abyss. He looks at Revelation chapters 4 through 18. He says it's all history. He looks at Matthew 24, said it all happened before 70 AD, and he spiritualizes the text. Listen, Dr. Pentecost used to tell us over and over and over again in seminary, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, otherwise you come up with nonsense. And that's true. The plain sense is clear. This is a literal event that is going to happen. There's a literal place called the abyss. Jesus mentioned it. 
And this abyss is both shut and sealed, the text says, until the thousand years are completed. This is the place of restraint so that he, Satan, would not deceive the nations any longer. So Satan right now is deceiving people. And the thing about deception is people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. That's the nature of deception. And so Satan is deceiving people in every age. And there are people today who believe untruths. They create untruths as he is crafting the world system around us. They speak untruths. They print untruths. They drink untruths. They smoke untruths. They watch untruths because they're deceived. Deception is when you think something is true and you embrace it as true. And that's why a pastor is supposed to preach with an open Bible. You know, people come here and they say, I didn't know I needed to bring a Bible. I've never needed one before to come to church. Of course not, because some pastor reads a text and never teaches the text. You don't need my blather. You don't need my thoughts. You need the word of God because that's what's going to give you discernment in the evil age in which we live. And so sadly, there are those who spiritualize this. They're amillennialists and they don't apply the same principle of interpretation that they do to the rest of the Bible. All the prophecies, over 300, concerning the first coming, how were they fulfilled? Literally, actually. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? Bethlehem. He'll be raised in Nazareth. Nazareth. Every single prophecy, literally fulfilled. But somehow, when they come to the second coming, they use a different principle of interpretation. Where does this come from? It comes out of Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic popes through the ages, for the most part, have been anti-Semites. I'm not saying everyone was, but I preached a sermon one time on the anti-Semitism of the Roman popes, quoting right out of their documents. And so they said, God's done with the Jewish people. We're the chosen people. And so you get these reformers who are entrenched in Catholicism. They get saved by hearing the gospel of grace. But they carry with them a whole lot of baggage. They say, well, you know, Satan was bound, the amillennialist says, at the cross. Well, I don't doubt for a second, because the Bible affirms it, that Satan's defeat was announced at the cross. But it won't be actualized until, as we'll see, at the second coming and then at the end of the millennium. Look, if, if Satan is bound... Why is there so much deception in the world? If he's already been chained, he must be on a very, very long chain. Hmm. So the kingdom commences with Satan's doom. Secondly, there in your outline, the millennial kingdom progresses under Christ's sovereignty. It progresses under his sovereignty. Again, in verse 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. These are tribulation saints. Those who had not worshiped the beast, the antichrist, or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, the 666, Revelation 13, and they came to life, and what did they do? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So all the martyred tribulation saints are reigned now here at the second coming of Christ. Now, it might be helpful to define some terms here because... And between these two services and the different campuses, we have a lot of new believers. And some of these terms are like a foreign language to you. As I told an 11-year-old boy in my office this week, 
He told me math was his favorite subject, and I said, you know your numbers? Yeah. Uh, you know how to add and subtract? Yeah. You know how to multiply and divide? Yeah. Do you know geometry? No. Not sure what that is. How about algebra? No. How about trigonometry? No. How about calculus? No. I said, now, every facet of math is built on the next. And so I said to him, look, when I preach a sermon, open your heart to God. Ask God to speak to you because he wants to speak to the heart of an 11-year-old boy. But understand, I'm teaching some people their numbers. They may be 11. They may be 71 but they're new to the faith. And there are some who may have been Christians for decades, but they've never matured. So they're just kind of learning the basics. But there's something here for everyone. But these are things God put in his word that you can understand. And so we need to understand it. And so when you think about the kingdom that is to come, there are different views on it. And I say this because you're going to hear it sooner or later. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray for that. It's never happened. But the Bible prophesies it. Every year we read typically Isaiah 9 at Christmas, and it's elucidated, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's the incarnation. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's never happened. But it's going to happen. Listen to Jeremiah 23. There's scores of passages that speak of a coming kingdom. There the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will call the Lord our righteousness. The apostles likewise believed that there was a literal coming kingdom. Remember, after Jesus was resurrected, he walked on the earth for 40 days. And there on the Mount of Olives, when he's about ready to ascend into heaven, he's saying, don't leave Jerusalem until the promise that I've described to you of the Spirit of God comes to indwell you because you need him to empower you to live a godly life. And so they ask a profound question, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Why would they ask that question? Because in the Old Testament passages where the kingdom is described, the Holy Spirit's power is accompanied with that kingdom, where people have a knowledge of God the way the sea covers the earth. It's coming. So they, is this the time, Lord? And this would have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, no, the kingdom's canceled. It's over. There won't be a literal kingdom. He just said, it's not for you to know the times or the epics. On another occasion, Peter asked Jesus. He said, look, we've left everything to follow you. What, what, what do we get? Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter in Acts 3, he gets up and he preaches what Jesus told him. He said, he preached in Acts 3, of one whom heaven must receive until, until the period of the restoration of all things. The kingdom hasn't been canceled. He's preaching to Jews. It's just been postponed. But there's coming a time called the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke how? By the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So he's reminding them that the Old Testament and the law and the prophets spoke of a literal rule of the Messiah upon the earth. What we learn in Revelation chapter 20 is the length of that kingdom. 
Not that there will be a kingdom, simply the length of the kingdom, that it will be a thousand years. Some Jewish rabbis in the Mishnah said it was 40 years. Some said it was 70 years. Some said it was 400 years. One said it was 7,000 years. Jesus, through his servant John, when he gives John this revelation, reveals it's a thousand years. It's exactly a thousand years. You say, Pastor Carl, do you think a thousand years means a thousand years? Absolutely. I mean, look, all the way through the revelation, God uses numbers in a literal way. Even in the immediate context, the thrones are literal. The angels are literal. The martyrs who've been beheaded, they're literal. Jesus is literal. The beast, the antichrist is literal. The image that men worship, that's literal. The 666 is literal, and so is the thousand-year reign. But you see, the amillennialist says, well, that's just a, a number of fullness. Things, you know, through the Lord reigning in heaven, there's his kingdom up in heaven, but he's not going to literally reign on the earth. So there's three schools of thought when you think about the reign of the Messiah. So let me give these to you. One is called amillennialism, and this has become very popular in the American church today. Amillennialism, just to picture it, it says that there will be apostasy throughout this time where Christ is building his church, there will be tribulation. But there's not coming a literal antichrist who will walk into a rebuilt temple and defile it. And all these things that we read in Matthew 24 and in Revelation 4 through 18, they're, they're just describing hard times. There's not literal 100-pound hail balls that are come to the earth. There's not literally a, this massive earthquake that's going to rock the cities of the world. The next event is the second coming. The second coming, there's one big judgment. The saved and the lost are separated, and we enter into the eternal state. That's uh, millennialism. Ah is the prefix that means no. Mille means a thousand. Anum means year. So they say there's no thousand-year reign of Christ. They spiritualize it away. Here's a second position. It's called post-millennialism. There's very few post-millennialists, but there's a small revival of them taking place. But it was a very popular theological persuasion in the 18th and 19th centuries. They said that Jesus, at some point, through his church, will make the world more and more and more righteous. The things will get better and better and better and better, and it will culminate with the second coming. Well, after World War I, they lost a following by some of the post-millennialists. After World War II, there was almost no post-millennialists. And by the way, the post-millennialists, for the most part, was initiated through people who didn't believe in the infallibility of Scripture. They were liberal theologians, but they persuaded some Christians to think that this was a position that you should take. Look, if you take Matthew 24 at face value or Revelation 4 through 18 at face value, according to the Scriptures, things are not going to get better. Jesus taught things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so the post-millennialist has a social gospel emphasis. Look, I'm not against helping earthquake victims. I'm, I'm praying for those Christian organizations that are there. Because right now they're allowed to be there. They're not usually allowed to be there. But right now they're allowed to be there and they're helping some of those people in the name of Jesus. But I don't think for one skinny moment 
that that is our primary role to make earth a better place to go to hell from. Yes, we should feed an empty stomach so the empty stomach has ears to hear the gospel. But God is not trying to save civilization from wreckage. He's trying to save man from the wreckage of civilization. This world is headed downward. And so post-millennialism, well, it's just not true. And so the third position is premillennialism. By the way, when you read the church fathers, there's early and late church fathers, there's one unanimous voice. And these are the people who live after the apostles die out, and they write commentaries and books. What do they all believe? Amillennialism, none of them. Postmillennialism, of course not. They are all premillennialists. That God is building his church. Someday a time of tribulation will happen. In the middle of that tribulation, an antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple. And by the time they write, the temple doesn't even exist. It was destroyed, as Jesus predicted, in 70 AD. But it will be rebuilt. The antichrist will defile it. Jesus will literally actually, physically come to the earth. The church will come with him. Old Testament saints will be raised. We just read that, Daniel 12. Tribulation saints will be raised. We just read that in verse 4. And they're surviving believers. That is, people who are alive, who survived the tribulation, who know Christ, they'll be separated out, both Jews and Gentiles, based on their faith, because no unbelievers, Jesus said, as we read already in Matthew 13, will enter his messianic kingdom. And so the plain interpretation of Scripture leads you to the premillennial view. Sometimes people call this, I think they misname it, a literal interpretation of Scripture. It would be better to say a plain historical interpretation because someone who would say, I believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture, they recognize that there's figures of speech. So when we say yesterday, like it did in my house, it rained cats and dogs last night. Uh, I didn't literally mean it rained cats and dogs. That's a figure of speech. But today, liberal theologians add to that most lost people, they'll say, you don't literally believe the Bible, do you? And what they really mean by that is, you're not telling me that my adultery is wrong. You're not telling me that my homosexuality is wrong. You're not telling me my right to take my baby is wrong, are you? That my transgenderism is wrong. And I'm saying, yes, I am. Because when the plain truth makes good sense, you shouldn't seek any other sense or you come up with sheer nonsense. All right, now, think with me for a moment. I want you to notice first that the world will be restored under Christ's blessing. In this coming time when he rules, the world will be restored under his blessing. We just read in verse 4, he saw these thrones and they that sat on them, the apostles, judgment was given to them. He saw the souls of those who had their heads cut off. That's what they've been doing in Turkey and Syria. You know that, don't you? And even in Egypt. Do you follow Jesus? Yes, sir. Taking off their heads. It's happening more than we hear, though we've heard much of it in the news. That's going to be the means of execution for Jesus' followers during the tribulation period. Why do they have their heads cut off? Because they don't follow globalism. They don't follow the Antichrist. They don't follow the false prophet. They don't worship the image. They don't take his 666 mark. And what does God do? He raises them to life, and they rule for a thousand years. Now, again, postmillennialism is just about dead. And so, amillennialists, there is no literal thousand-year reign. 
they just spiritualize it. You say, well, how do they interpret it? Depends on the amillennialists. Therein lies the problem. You read a more contemporary amillennialist like R.C. Sproul, and he was different from the amillennialists of 100 years ago and 100 years before that and 100 years before that. Why? Because there's no rhyme or reason. If you spiritualize the text, you can make it mean just about anything you want. And that's an abuse of Scripture. There's no reason to take this thousand-year reign as symbolic. Listen, all the other numbers are plain in Scripture. If the thousand years is symbolic, are there 7,000 people who die in the earthquake of Revelation 11? Is that symbolic? How about the 12,000 Jewish people from each tribe numbering 144,000? Are they symbolic? What about the five months that the demons are let out of the abyss to wreak havoc upon the earth? Is that five-month period under the fifth trumpet? Is that symbolic? What about numbers like 42 months or 1,260 days? Is that symbolic? To ask these questions is sheer absurdity. And you end up twisting the scriptures. Verse 2, we just read it. I laid hold of the dragon and the devil and bound him for a thousand years. Satan is deceiving today. He doesn't have this long chain. You have to just wipe out so much scripture. Listen, Jesus spoke of a literal time frame. Listen to this verse in Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you, You have followed me in the regeneration, underscore that in your mind. You've read that before. Maybe you said, what's the regeneration? In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, here's Jesus promising his 12 apostles that in some way, in the coming regeneration, they will literally sit on thrones and they will judge Israel. Now, understand the context of this statement. The rich young ruler, Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And you have these ridiculous tour guides who say, well, here's the needle's eye, and the camel would stoop down, he'd go through the gate. And Luke, who's a physician, uses a particular word for a surgical needle. Jesus is speaking of the near impossibility of a rich man to get saved. Why? Because like the rich young ruler, he loved his money. That was his God. Now, there are many rich, wealthy people in the Scripture who get saved. But for the most part, for many people, money becomes their God. And so, hey, Jesus, what about us? We left everything. We're not like the rich young ruler. What do you got for us? Of course, Judas was there. Judas could have sat on one of those 12 thrones. For 30 measly pieces of silver, he denied Christ. He forfeited that right. And so he speaks here of the regeneration. The regeneration when the Son of Man will come. It's an interesting word. It's used two ways in the Scripture. One of believers, like in Titus chapter 3, where it describes the second birth, where you've been regenerated, you've been born again. You're made a new creature in Christ. It's also used in Scripture of the earth. You see, when Adam fell, the creation fell with him. God put man on notice. What happened with that earthquake this, year, this week? Well, the BBC recorded one woman who was cursing God to his face. You took my child. She cursed God to his face. But what did most of those dear people do? They fell on their knees. They thought the day of judgment had come. They had asked God for mercy. 
And again, that's one of the functions of the tribulation, to get people's attention, to show them their need for mercy, that this life is but a vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone. What if we have an earthquake? You know, to me, it's amazing. We've barely covered it in the American press. We're more consumed with this satanic worship at the Grammys last week and the latest politics and the Super Bowl than we are with the lives of people who are perishing because our priorities are way out of whack. But the term regeneration is also used in the sense that the world is going to be born again. Paul says all of creation moans and groans like the sons who are waiting for their, the redemption of their bodies, but someday God is going to somehow rejuvenate and restore the earth. Listen to these words from Isaiah 11. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The day is coming. It's not here yet. The desert will bloom like a rose. It's not the irrigation that's taking place in Israel today. That's just a smidgen of their land that's blooming. It's coming. The Dead Sea, men will be able to fish in it. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. If you die at 100, you're considered a curse because a man who's 100 years old will be considered a young man. Now, we'll see. This is not heaven. There's death in the millennium. There's rebellion. Who? Through the tribulation saints who have children and grandchildren and great children, which, by the way, eliminates the possibility for a post-tribulational rapture. Because if we're all raptured at the end of the tribulation, then who can sin during the millennial reign of the Messiah? Because if you're in glorified bodies, you can't sin. Oh, well, I guess we'll just get rid of the thousand-year reign and we'll be amillennialists. Remember, no unbelievers enter the kingdom. You have to have unbelievers entering the kingdom, contradicting what Jesus said in John 3, Matthew 13, and a number of other places. So Jesus will come, sweep up his church. Seven plus years later, we'll come back with him. Old Testament saints will be raised. Tribulation saints will be saved, raised. Believers, Jews, and Gentiles will enter into the kingdom and their natural bodies live an extended period of time. And some of their children won't receive Jesus as Lord. That's why he's going to have to reign with a rod of iron. You say, you think this will happen? Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Has that ever happened? No. Did Jesus teach us to pray something that was out of the will of God? Absolutely not. It's going to happen. The world will be restored under his blessing. Secondly, the world will be ruled under Christ's lordship. I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And so he's describing the apostles that we've already seen, letting Scripture interpret the Scripture. They're going to rule and reign. And also these tribulation saints who are brought out of the grave, they will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Those who had been beheaded, the same group that you read about in Revelation 6 and 7, 
who, because of their faith for Jesus, lose their lives. They refuse to bow down to the Antichrist. And they are going to be raised, and not only will they be raised to rule, the church will rule. Jesus speaks of the church ruling and reigning with him. Remember in Revelation 2.26, and he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Then, speaking of this very reign in the next verse, he quotes Psalm 2. You know that psalm, many of you. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also received authority from my father. Psalm 2, if you know the psalm, it predicts the day when the father will give to the son a marvelous kingdom. Men today, they raise their little ugly fists in the face of God Almighty, and the scripture says, God in heaven, he laughs. Because he knows what is coming. And by the way, you're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by perseverance. But Jesus' point in other passages is that if you are saved, you will persevere. You will overcome. And this is not a promise he simply made to reign to the church at Thyatira. Like in the other churches, he who has an ear, to let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means us. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Or in Revelation 5 and verse 10, he says of Christians, of believers, of tribulation saints, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Or in Revelation 20 and verse, 40, we just, verse 4, we just read that tribulation saints will reign with him for a thousand years. And just to make it clear that there will be some people who won't reign, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. We will see when they come to life at the end of the thousand years. But these saints, they're part of the first resurrection. Now remember, all scripture, and we'll, we'll discuss the first resurrection in great detail next time. There are three component aspects to the first resurrection. So just hold on, we'll come to it. But let me give some application as we close. Remember, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And all Scripture is profitable. And so God would have us study even a text like this because it's profitable. First, Jesus' coming reign should increase my awareness of God's timing. It should increase my awareness of God's timing. And I'm always awed by the precision in the Bible over God's timing. He speaks here of a thousand years where Satan is incarcerated, and then at the end of the thousand years, we'll read next time how he'll be released. And of course, Paul, in describing the first coming in Galatians 4, said that Jesus came in the fullness of time, that is to say, at just the right time. But at the end of time, unbelievers will ask questions like, where is the promise of his coming? You Christians talk about Jesus coming back. You've been talking about that for 2,000 years. Where is it? And Peter will say, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as is one day. And though it's almost been 2,000 years, Christ will keep his promise. One of these days, the trumpet will sound, the sky will be rolled back, Jesus will rise up from his throne and he'll step down to earth and he'll receive his own. That day is coming. Second, Jesus is coming Rain should increase my awareness of God's sovereignty. His coming should increase my awareness of God's sovereignty. This chapter really pictures God as a sovereign God. Even Satan and his demons 
They are limited as to what they can do. Satan is on a leash. Luther used to say, the devil is God's devil, meaning he can only do what God allows. Clearly, you see pictures of that in places like the book of Job. And so it seems like evil is growing. Evil is multiplying exponentially, and it is. There seems to be this new dark cloud where people would share and laud the worship of Satan at the Grammy Awards. Then we have relentless sexual immorality. And it's just the tip of the iceberg because those who are experts on the internet say that the watching of pornography is at an all-time high. Add to that, you now have those who want to normalize the gay and transgender lifestyle. Some of these doctors ought to be locked up and thrown in prison for mutilating little children. Big money. Have you looked at the dollars that are involved in changing a boy into a girl? It's big, big money. And then we have those transgender people who want to perform in front of children. You want to make God mad? Just cause a little child to stumble. Add to that, we have politicians who are screaming that it's a woman's right to kill her little baby. We have atheists who are trying to eradicate every expression of God in the public arena. In addition, we have police shootings that used to be occasional, now they become weekly. And we're putting police down. We're not teaching our children to respect them. Why would anybody want to become a cop? You know, we're short 35 police officers in Beaufort County. They tell me that when I need to do a funeral. We're down 35 and we can't find the replacements. Why would I want to be a cop? You don't want to live in a world with no policemen. And then we have these mass shootings in places that once historically were safe places like schools and churches. Add to that, people are afraid that we're on the verge of an atomic nuclear war. And it seems like evil is spreading everywhere. Pew Research just a few months ago said that the majority of Americans now believe that it's not necessarily to, necessary to believe in God to have good morals. Meanwhile, half of young adults in America believe that astrology is a science. And when you read the millennials and Generation Z and their appetite for horoscopes and palm reading, and it's skyrocketing while church attendance is plummeting. Paul warned, but the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, we've seen that term, not last days, but in latter times, pointing to the end of the age, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Ladies and gentlemen, that day has arrived. But we have a God who is in charge. He is on his throne John will write, you are from God, little children, and have overcome the world because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And while God is allowing Satan to perform certain things, our God is sitting on his throne, 
and he is in charge. Third and finally, Jesus' coming reign should increase my awareness of God's grace. You know, as I read this morning about the first resurrection, I'm just grateful that I'm going to be a part of it. I don't deserve it. I deserve God's wrath. That's all God owed me. But through the mercy of the cross, he has forgiven me. And not only has he forgiven me, he's promised me that I will share with Jesus in his rule and reign as every true child of God will. That's grace. That's mercy. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never found the grace of God, you don't earn it. By nature, it is gifted. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You must come as a bankrupt person, recognizing your sin is atrocious, that it's evil, it's heinous, that it needs to be forgiven and changed, but it can only be forgiven through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the time we've shared this morning. Thank you that you are in control that everything is happening just as you prophesied it would happen, that things are not falling apart. They're coming together for the return of your son. I pray today as your people that we would be compassionate even in this new week to the people that we will meet, that we will recognize that every person we encounter is either headed for hell or headed for heaven. We can't share with everyone, but we can share with someone. And so we ask you, as Paul prayed, that you would give us an open door to share Christ. I pray today for someone who's listening here online at one of our campuses who are unsure of heaven. Help them to understand that gifts are not earned. The gift of God you said is eternal life. That gifts are humbly received. Thank you that you can say whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Father, because you did what you did, you can promise what you promise, that whosoever will may come. Help someone, a child, a teenager, an old man, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.